Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And today on episode 312, I am so delighted to share with you a robust conversation with Koa Beck, author of the new fantastic book, White Feminism, From the Suffragettes to Influencers and Who They Leave Behind. I want to keep this super brief and jump right into today's convo because there's just so much to cover. Uh, and Koa and I, I'm going to be totally honest with you. Like we kind of, I have a little bit of an existential crisis on this episode because reading her book really uh, triggered not only defensiveness (laughs) from this white feminist, shocking, I know, but also just this huge conflict between systemic injustice, you know, fighting the good fight as an organizer, which is where I got my start after all versus what I do every day here at Bossed Up, which is try to provide individual solutions for you to be the agent of change in your own come-up story, despite the injustices and challenges that are in our path. And her book really challenges that notion um, of that as feminism. So I'm not going to lie, it's it was a hard read for me. And luckily, Koa Beck is so delightful that... I was able to just sort of level with her in our interview that you're about to hear and have a really productive and really educational and inspiring conversation with her uh, who has, she has so much to share. I highly recommend picking up her book and take your sweet time with it. I read it quickly and I'm going to have to read it again because there is a lot to unpack there. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on Koa. Koa Beck is the former editor of Chief of Jezebel and co-host of the hashtag MeToo memos on WNYC's The Takeaway. Previously, she was the executive editor of Vogue.com and the senior features editor at MarieClaire.com. Koa was a guest editor for the 2019 special pride section of the New York Times commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots, editing such prominent voices as Kate Bornstein, Gavin Grimm, Julia Serrano, and Barbara Smith, among other activists. In 2019, Koa was awarded the Joan Shorenstein Fellowship at the Harvard Kennedy School, publishing an academic paper titled Self-Optimization in the Face of Patriarchy, How Mainstream Women's Media Facilitates White Feminism. Do you see what I'm talking about? Do you see how my sort of pursuit of self-optimization through Boston might be kind of a kind of a hair trigger for me in in discussing her work. Well, Koa taught me a lot in her book and in this discussion, uh, her new book, White Feminism, From the Suffragettes to Influencers and Who They Leave Behind, was published by Simon & Schuster in January of this year. And I'm so delighted to be sitting down with the author herself, Koa Beck. Welcome, Koa. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. 
I'm so excited to speak with you. I have to admit, I just finished your book. <laughs> I've been on a speed reading uh, tear all week, and I'm really excited to speak with you and and really dive into the very nuanced and frankly somewhat challenging concepts that you present. Um, but first, tell us a little bit about how you got here. What What's your story? What's your background? Why this topic? So my career has been in mainstream women's media um, for the most part, you know, with some exceptions. Um, I've been a journalist and editor for about 10 years. So when I graduated, there were no media jobs. And then in 2016, I believe, um, I was hired as the senior features editor at MaryClaire.com. And that was really the first like mainstream, you know, um, brand that I yeah. stepped into with regards to like gender and reporting. And then after Mary Claire, I was the executive editor at Vogue.com. After that, I was the editor in chief of Jezebel. And uh, that really brought my career full circle, I feel like, in that, right. you know, Jezebel was a publication I read when I was uh, just out of college. <laughs> um, and it was one of the places that, you know, I would read every day, you know, in terms of um, people talking about gender politics in a way that, you know, wasn't very sanitized in terms of like, you know, the academic theory that, you know, I read and loved, you know, in college. Um, but, you know, this was about like pop culture and contemporary conversations and much more colloquial and accessible and, um, you know, also pulling in a lot of feminist theorists almost in this very like organic, like conversational way. And then later, you know, about a decade later, actually, I became EIC of that exact website. And then um, I... Uh, while I was at Jezebel, I was awarded a um, prestigious fellowship at the Harvard Kennedy School. It's called the Joan Shorenstein Fellowship. Um, if any of your listeners are, you know, in media or even if, you know, they're historians or, you know, into sort of like long-term projects, I highly recommend it as something that can help you, you know, achieve long-term projects, you know, whether that's like a book or, you know, any sort of like paper you want to write. Um, and it was a uh, an amazing opportunity in terms of, you know, actually getting to step away from a busy newsroom and devote myself fully to the research of this book and have, as you can imagine, um, all the incredible archives and resources that Harvard has. Right. Which shows in your, what is it, like 80 pages of footnotes here as well. Oh, thank it's like, you. Yes, it's an extremely yes. well-researched, well, uh, sort of put together book that draws from so many other texts throughout history, which is really interesting. Um, and, and that definitely shows. I, I want to dive into how your experience in the newsroom, right, or in a journalistic sense, kind of brought you to white feminism as a topic. Because one of the early references you make in the book that really stood out to me was when other folks in journalism would label some of the gender politics topics as niche. So mm -hmm. tell me what that meant. Tell me what that sort of spurred for you and how that led you to writing about what whatever white feminism is, because I do want to get <laughs> to that as well. Well, I, I, what one thing I wanted to be sure and track, you know, as acutely as I could in the book is I feel like the time, you know, in which 
certain conversations on gender or, you know, gender politics are happening is very telling about, you know, how feminism or, or, you know, even just gender progress was being presented at the time. And I think that especially when I'm reflective about my career and a lot of the, you know, experiences in newsrooms that you just cited, I went from this really, you know, sheltered women's college in Northern California reading Judith Butler, you know, on the floor of my professor's homes, like very small classes, um, an intensely cerebral environment. And I, you know, as a teenager, I'm 33, I'm almost 34. And so, you know, my teen years, that time, especially in pop culture, and I do get into this in the book, you know, feminism was a dirty word and being... Um, you know, identifying as a feminist, being outed as a feminist, um, having feminist politics, that was a very dirty, ugly, unattractive thing. And the time, you know, I nevertheless, you know, use that word and engaged in those conversations because I don't care about things like that. But, um, you know, by the time I graduated college and I document this in the book, that was changing. Right. Um, feminism, quote unquote, how, however you want to interpret that, was becoming very trendy. Um, previously, you know, only like four or five years before, all of our top selling female vocalists in this country, you know, unanimously were like, I'm not a feminist. How right. dare you imply right. <laughs> that I, you know, would go anywhere near feminism? I'm in a leotard. Um, but yeah, <laughs> uh, very quickly, you know, especially especially being a a young woman and like moving into these very professional spaces that were then, you know, constructing conversations on feminism. Feminism was suddenly trendy and cool. Um, And in the one hand, I think that, you know, facilitated certain parts of my career where suddenly, you know, these texts that I read as a very young person and, you know, a fluency with bell hooks and, you know, a reference to Audre Lorde, suddenly that wasn't quote unquote niche anymore. That was actually Mm. very mainstream. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And, and that happened very quickly. But as you alluded to what I started to notice in a lot of these newsrooms in which, you know, I was tasked with doing quote unquote feminist coverage, you know, however you think about that, or, you know, spotlighting women who identified as feminists, I started to realize in real time that, you know, when I said the word feminist and a lot of the feminist identified, you know, managers I worked under said that word, we were actually thinking about two completely different things. Mm. And a lot of times what I was being asked to do, however, indirectly was to perpetuate white feminism. And I get into that in a lot more details in the book and that, you know, I, feminism was being defined very narrowly as, you know, professional advancement for women in white collar positions only, um, having like a cis male partner who changes diapers with you, um, making a lot of money and being very autonomous to the point where like, you know, when I wanted to do stories that were more on like, you know, poverty or, you know, affordable housing or, you know, poor women not being able to afford diapers, the message that was often given to me in, you know, those pitch meetings and also just like in the culture I worked in is that those weren't quote unquote feminist topics. Right. And so that, I mean, that's like the central premise of at least the early parts of your book when you're trying to explain what is white feminism. Um, It's really, I think the way you put it towards the end of the book is really helpful and we're going to talk about that as well, but sort of tiered feminism of of prioritizing Mm -hmm. basic human rights, not women's success, women's financial autonomy, even agency, which... Yeah. It's super hard for me to swallow because it's been it's been such an interesting sort of 
progression of feminism. By the way, we're the same age, right? So I've lived through that same sort of cultural, (laughs) you know, (laughs) sort of branding of feminism. I'm thinking Mm -hmm. of Beyonce standing in front of feminist all in lights, Mm -hmm. right? And like what a different reality that is compared to how we grew up um, Mm -hmm. thinking about feminism. And yet what you really kind of call attention to in the book is that from the very earliest days around women's suffrage till now, you know, a lot of people's interpretation of feminism has focused on white, mostly, you know, middle to upper class women's success. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I went from being a political organizer to running Bossed Up, which is a personal and professional development company, sort of helping women say, I know there's injustice abound. Let's go get ours anyway. And so your whole mm-hmm. sort of takedown of agency um, was so hard for me to wrap my head around. Help me understand. Help me help me come like help. Let's look at that idea and that premise around what is truly problematic and really short-sighted um, of centralizing, you know, white upper to middle class women's experiences in our interpretation of feminism. Cause I agree it's, it's problematic, but it was hard to read. <laughs> it was hard to read that, you know? Well, and I think it's, uh, I, before I get into that, I think if you're sure. comfortable with me saying this, you know, on your platform, totally, it's like, I think that, you know, women, Having spaces where they talk about their professional advancement, wanting to be, um, you know, leaders in very corporate settings, I don't necessarily take issue with that on face value. What I do take issue with is when that becomes conflated with a dominant feminist narrative or when those strategies are branded as feminist. So I think that's a good um, distinguishing, you know, factor for a lot of your listeners, because I think if you want to, you know, for instance, craft like a private networking club where you and people who are wealthy, just like you and are looking to achieve more wealth, it's a capitalist venture and you're entitled to do that. (laughs) Um, But it's when, and, and I say this really, you know, as my own opinion, not necessarily, you know, as being representative of like other approaches to feminist feminism or other approaches to feminist theory. I I really just say this is me in in the world, but um, you know, if you want to pursue those avenues towards individual accumulation of wealth and power in a capitalist framework, I think that you are entitled to do that. And our culture broadly as Americans has facilitated you being able to do that. But I would be personally irked if, you know, I got a promotional email from you that said, this is feminism, right? It's, it's very feminist for us to sit around yeah. <laughs> and, and try and figure out ways to make more money as individualized, right. you know, women, as opposed to, you know, thinking about, necessarily getting like healthcare for our nannies, you know, who watch our children so that we can be here or, you know, advocating to get say like a a better wage, you know, for the women who come and clean our homes so that we can be here. You know, that's uh, I think a fundamental difference, but um, in uh, synthesizing, I think your original question about, um, well, I guess to jump in there, let me, let me jump in and say, What I hear you saying is that conflating individualized capitalist success of a woman, a singular woman, as the same thing as feminism is where we get in trouble, (laughs) is where things get really screwy, right? 
Yeah. Yes, very, very, very much so. And yeah. like you alluded to earlier, there's a very long history of that in in this country. Um, I start my book with you know what I deem to be the foundations of the white feminist ideology and practice. Um, in that you know there there's a big through line between the middle to upper class white suffragists who you know anchored a lot of their activism and understanding of women's empowerment not necessarily just on the vote, although that was a big deal, and I get into that a lot in terms of their strategies, but their templates for feminism were based solely on the men in their lives. Right. And the white white feminism of now, you know, works that way too, in terms of looking at, you know, your husband, your dad, your brother, your son, and saying, you know, that sort of dominance, like that um, leadership skill set, you know, running a company in that capacity that's deeply exploitative of under, you know, uh, below hey, wage workers, yeah. we'll say, um, that is equality. And so it's exporting a lot of these patriarchal values to women, um, especially in terms of labor exploitation, and then deeming it, you know, empowering right. for them. And you have these so things. many, like you have so many examples of just the past 10 years alone of, of how <laughs> many women leaders we've seen kind of ride that wave and then crash and burn. And I, I took some delight in it from like a sadistic kind of way or of this voyeuristic, <laughs> like, yeah, all right, let's talk about Sophia Amoroso and how she systematically fired people who got pregnant. Let's talk about the Theranos founder and how she defrauded people and we're supposed to <laughs> laud her for being like some amazing girl boss, you know, but also it was so depressing. It was so depressing <laughs> to like read about women who have been held up in some way, or at least for some amount of time as like, look at this badass female founder. And then, Oh, right. She's just another tech bro in women's yeah. identity. You know what I mean? And it's just so depressing to think well, it's a good reminder of what you're saying, which is like capitalism is inherently not, you know, down with equality around equal rights. Like that's not what you're going to find in the capitalist marketplace. So it was it was I don't know. I left me myself feeling a little depressed about it because I do think economic power can create opportunity and rights especially for women mm -hmm. who are, you know, maybe didn't have a lot of cash growing up or mm -hmm. know what it's like to be broke. Um, but this idea that we all have choices, individual choices and options to leverage is sort of blind, I guess, is, is part of what I took away from your book is that, you know, having good choices to make to begin with is a privilege in and of itself. Um yeah, and I'll and I'll add that um, I think a, a big distinguishing factor between you know what you just said because economics and and money and basic standards of living or organized women's rights has always centered on those and even you know outside of women's rights a number of queer movements have focused on that as well so I don't find that to be like inherently bad or even inherently problematic the distinction that I think is important to make here is like between, you know, a lot of the um, female like corporate leaders you just cited, right? What is advocated in their narratives of success is that if you want to get out of your circumstances as a marginalized gender, as a woman, you will 
start your own company. Right. You will start your own enterprise. Yeah. You will raise seed money. You will develop a newsletter. And the thing is, if you're, say, like, a, you know, a domestic worker in this country, mm-hmm. you shouldn't have to be a quote unquote girl boss to live above the poverty line. Right. You know, it's interesting how many comparisons you make with the labor movement in general, which is where I got my start politically, right? I I was back in the day a state director with Organizing for America after the election of Barack Obama to the White House, but also worked on labor coalitions uh, on the state legislative level in Rhode Island, you know, advocating for on coalitions, which is such a cluster <laughs> in so many ways, but coalitions of, you know, now and the teachers unions in the same state. And it was interesting to hear how that comes up because, you know, whether it was the suffragists who focused on the vote or you bring it into the mainstream or modernish day with looking at the women's march on Washington. I want to read this quote you have. Um, Who was this from? From Ashley Farmer, a historian at Boston University who was speaking to NPR in 2017 about what you call the sexism-only ideology going into the Women's March, when we actually get down to representation or creating a list of demands or mobilizing around a set of ideas, Ashley Farmer, a historian from Boston University, explained to NPR in 2017, it tends to be that white middle-class or upper-class women's priorities get put above the rest. Mm -hmm. And your sort of reshuffling of those priorities is a call to arms essentially for feminists to kind of reverse the order from financial success and raising seed money to how about basic human rights first right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i and i advocate you know towards the in the the last third of the book um, I advocate as you said earlier in the show you know a, a reassessment of those priorities and that mm-hmm. you know starting feminisms, however you're interpreting that, or gender movements with basic needs, food security, affordable housing, clean water, um, healthcare access, you know, and then working up to, say, like education or, you know, small business and enterprise. Right. And for the individual who is thinking about being a good feminist, you know what I mean? Just to be clear, your book does not, you know, get shallow in that way. It doesn't sort of say, okay, here's the top notes, you know, 10 ways to be a good feminist. Um, you know, it's it's nuanced and you treat it as such. But that reshuffling of priorities, I'm I'm struggling with the vision. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean expanding what we think feminism is? Or does it mean seeing every sort of intersecting issue as um, sort of prioritized by basic needs first? Clean water, you talk about, you know, mm-hmm. access to to basic, basic things that t- millions of women still lack. Mm-hmm. In terms of execution, I mean, depending on where you sit in the world and what is available to you and what, you know, other women or marginalized genders, you know, need in your immediate area, I think those tiers can be interpreted in a lot of different ways in Mm -hmm. terms of action plans. In terms of my own life and say, you know, certain women, um, you know, that are feminist identified that I know, or, you know, even like since the book has come out, um, a lot of people on social have been reaching out to me, um, 
very sweetly, like sharing me, you know, their notes <laughs> and, you <laughs> know, great. like asking me certain questions or, you know, it's, it's very endearing, um, you know, especially now to be able to have interactions with readers like that. Um, but I think that in terms of what I lay out at the end, as I anchor, you know, a lot of theories in the book, it's thinking more structurally. Mm. And so I think that for, you know, a lot of women, and I do get into this in the book, like, I'm always confronted with this question of like, what can I do right. you know, as the individual person who has attended your talk and is raising my hand and is like, what can I do to combat, you know, fill in the blank, racism, heterosexism, capitalism, you know, in my business classroom neighborhood community. And I'm very upfront in the book that um, I don't think you alone can. I think that's a lie that, you know, white feminism has perpetuated that like you alone will walk in and be able to dismantle, you know, all of patriarchy with your desk and, you know, your smartphone. Um, in terms of what I lay out, I think those things need to be considered and weighed more structurally. So for instance, like with, you know, food security and then affordable housing, these are all legislative efforts. And, you know, while there's a lot you can do in terms of like grassroots organizing, you know, I think of like last summer, you know, Wall of Moms, uh, which now, you know, as far as I know, they have chapters all over the place mm. um, in terms of banding together, specifically as women to combat, you know, systemic racism and then like a number of other issues. I've read online that, you know, they're they're putting together um you know, a, a action plan, but I'm not affiliated with the organization, so I can't speak to that. Um, but approaching these sorts of things collectively. And also I think a lot of times the piece that is missing is pressure on our government. Um, you know, I don't expect small business owners in particular to be able to magically afford subsidized childcare or like substantial paid parental leave. I mean, you're not able to offer that to your employees because our government does not offer it. And that's actually their responsibility. Although, that's not yours. I have to give a little shout out to the Colorado legislature because as of this year, um, you know, we as voters here in Colorado passed, we became the first state to pass paid parental leave on the ballot. And that's going to be implemented oh. in the next couple of years and private options are coming to market this year from insurance companies locally. So even a tiny four person or four employee business like mine can start to actually budget for that. <laughs> so congratulations, Colorado. Right? Okay. Exactly the kind of thing I'm talking yeah. about. There's an example. <laughs> um, I think that one of the things that, you know, white feminism has been very successful in, whether we're talking about like what some people call the first wave to now is that, you know, because they're very product based and, you know, are very, it's a very capitalistic uh, ideology, you know, everything is about like products and like buying things to help you facilitate all the structural failure. Yeah. And a non-white feminist ideology and approach to, you know, many of the things that are in the book, as well as I'm sure, you know, things that your listeners talk about and, you know, engage with you about there are structural strategies to either overcome or combat those. It's not an app you download. It's not a business you start. It's not a private enterprise. It is putting things on the ballot and then, you know, hoping that people are actually able to vote. Yeah. I mean, it's the fact that America remains the only industrialized nation without a national federal parental leave plan, policy, program, any yeah. of any kind. And same thing with yeah. affordable childcare. I think... This is not like radical stuff. It's actually proven no. on every other, you know, functioning democracy. So, 
Yeah. Well, and I think too, um, in, in terms of the structural failure, I mean, those exact issues that you raise, Emily, like you can flip it the other way and see it and that, you know, we're the same age. So I've spent a lot of time in newsrooms, you know, reading these very sad, like op-eds, you know, from women who are lamenting that, you know, they can't necessarily spend as much time with their children as they would want to because of, you know, the financial responsibilities with this job that they're on a track for. And that means that they miss certain things and they're such a bad mom. And it's like, no, that, that, that doesn't really in a lot of ways have anything to do with you. <laughs> that is a structural failure. It's not your responsibility um, to necessarily, you know, erect this entire different sphere by which your family doesn't exist like other families. If you lived in a number of other countries, you know, you would have been able to be with your newborn for up to 36 months paid. Um, you would have, you know, universal childcare that wouldn't eat up, you know, so much of your salary that there would be a question around you working outside the home, mm -hmm. you know, if it was even worth it. Yeah. It's interesting. I think my business, see, here's the thing that really <laughs> gets sticky is that a business like Bossed Up is part of the self-empowerment, self-improvement space that is kind of just in existence in the face of those systemic failures. Like, no one needs to listen to a podcast about self-improvement and self-advocacy in the workplace if we had these workers' protections to begin with. Like, frankly, my business in an ideal world shouldn't have to exist. Um, and so it's it's interesting, like, for me, I, I, got, I got defensive. Like I saw myself, I felt myself getting defensive reading your book, thinking like there's still a place in the, in the, like in the face of injustice, in the face of complete systemic failures, there still is a space for owning your power, advocating for all your worth. It's just not going to be sufficient and it's certainly not going to reach everybody. Um, well, Oh, sorry. I didn't no, 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 that. please. I, I don't even know where I was going with that. But that to me is the central kind of tension I feel about that whole reality. I actually don't agree with that in terms of, you know, your podcast. I mean, granted, I haven't listened to all the episodes, but I think that even, you know, in, say, a, hy a hypothetical climate, right, where we had every worker protection that we wanted, it was passed, um, we had good legislation, there was good minimum wage, I still see a space for like a, a platform where women discuss specifically women discuss workplace issues and that like, you know, you could have a three part series on like how to start a union right. at your job. Right. Um, you could, you know, engage in all sorts of, uh, like structural knowledge and also like li literacy surrounding like executing certain things with a union or like approaching management or like, you know, what to do if, you know, you are threatened in some capacity within the union or, you know, and any, like, I think there's still a, a good need for some place to host conversations like that. I think the, the tension that I'm hearing on my side of the mic is that it just wouldn't be the same issues. Yeah. I see what you're saying. It's more like, yeah. Okay. Systemic solutions instead of the individual exceptional story of success, despite right. the odds. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. But like, but like I think about, you know, a, a number of websites that, you know, I've worked at, right that have trafficked in white feminism, have, you know, purported like, you know, white feminist understandings of gender issues. And I think about, you know, if all those websites had just 
you know, been like, here's a how-to guide on how to start a union. Here's like how to, you know, stage a walkout if you and your female colleagues are being paid unfairly. Here's how to petition for this. I mean, we might potentially be looking, you know, now at like a very different generation of women and non-binary people who like have that that literacy and that understanding of sexism, as opposed to here are all these personalized solutions that you can take on to give yourself more time to, you know, answer emails to like automate this so (laughs) that you have more time to like do laundry. You know what I mean? And like that could have really changed, you know, a whole generational understanding of patriarchy. Yeah. And maybe the future of the labor movement, which is not what we thought it would be. Um, That is interesting. And you're giving me all kinds of ideas. I love it. So at Bust Up, we have been trying to think more systemically instead of individually, not just about the problems, but like you're saying about the solutions. I've got a very interesting question that feels somewhat related around this tension between individual success and systemic activism that came mm-hmm. in from a longtime listener of ours, Catherine. It seems it just seems really related and appropriate to your book. So I thought I would play it for you and see what you might share uh, in, in the form of a response. Let me take a moment here to play it. Hi, Emily. This is Catherine calling from the D.C. area, Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, I have a question that I thought would be great to explore on the podcast. I just listened to your episode on white fragility, which was really helpful. And something that I've been sort of struggling with is as a woman who, you know, I'm trying to advance my career and, and boss up in my own life. How can I, how can a white woman do that without holding back black women and women of color? I'm just thinking of how, you know, given the systemic racism that exists, like, is it possible for a white woman to become a CEO or a leader of a nonprofit without taking those opportunities away from women of color and black women? Koa, what do you think about Catherine's question? Because I feel like you give some good examples uh, in the book in your own life and how you've sort of created power yourself and then created avenues for others to create power themselves. But I'd be curious, do you agree that there's sort of this inherent tension between being a good anti-racist and being an ambitious white woman? Oh, very much so. And I think that um, Catherine's question is really pertinent and very well presented, you know, in terms of I like hearing her what sounds like to me like she's actually thinking, you know, as she's Mm -hmm. articulating this. And she's absolutely right in picking up on this tension. A big question that I've been asked a lot on book tour um, that I think also gets to what Catherine, you know, is sensing and also questioning is Mm. I'm repeatedly asked, you know, in various ways. So how can I, you know, run my business in the same capacity I always have, run my home in (laughs) the same capacity in which I always have, have my marriage and my friends, you know, in the same capacity that I always have and engage in all these institutions and then quote unquote, be inclusive to women of color. 
Right, um, right. And I'm They're going, like, please give me your blessing. <laughs> well, and I yeah. think that what Catherine is picking up on is very real and textured in that, you know, a lot of those institutions, a lot of the avenues that facilitate your success, you know, whether from a white feminist standpoint or, you know, just from a straight up capitalistic standpoint, those structures are inherently built on exploiting a number of people of color, usually women, but, you know, it depends on which realm we're talking about. So I think that for her specifically, and also for, you know, a lot of people who are listening and may, you know, Mm -hmm. also pick up on that same tension, you're absolutely right too. That actually means that you're engaging with the subject matter and you're paying attention to these conversations. This is what you're, to my assessment, you know, I think you should be thinking about, um, because so Mm. far for, you know, four waves of white feminism, um, and, you know, white feminist practices in this country, Catherine is right. Um, that success, liberty, autonomy, and agency has been facilitated because of the underpaid, you know, work of women of color because Mm -hmm. of the low wages that everybody else gets so that you can have a six figure salary in whatever capacity. So I would encourage Catherine and many listeners to basically make the same assessment in terms of re-interrogating power in their own life, Mm -hmm. but also along with the many other women that you work with, you know, in terms of resources Mm -hmm. you need and are not getting from the federal government or you think that you know you would like to offer your employees or you think that the company you work for should you know employ women over 50 should absolutely have you know an extended paid parental leave Um, these are good structural assessments to keep in mind specifically because you know white feminism is very good at keeping us in this very locked hierarchy, you know, in which like as a Mm -hmm. middle-class woman, you achieve a certain leadership role. And then the way you facilitate that leadership role, if you even do want to have children is that, you know, you just hire a nanny. And I think that, you know, having these moments like Catherine does where you're more reflective um, and thinking about how your own success is facilitated by those exact structures. I think that's an mm-hmm. amazing place to start. Yeah. I also want to just highlight two moments in your book where you kind of, I think, give a real playbook for answering that concern. One is when you're talking about uh, in the second pillar of change, how you handled having your first assistant. Oh, Can yeah. you kind of give us a recap of you finding yourself in a position of power yeah. and success, right, in a corporate environment and the way your assistant had been working previously versus after you took the reins, like what did that change look like and what's the lesson to draw there? Yeah, absolutely. So as Emily says, um, at one of my prestigious media roles, um, I showed <laughs> up the first day And they showed me, you know, where everything is. Here's your office. Here's, you know, our swanky coffee. Here's, you know, the team, blah, blah, blah. And in that same breath, they said, and here's your assistant, (laughs) Um, which I thought, and I don't even say this from like an intellectual standpoint, but I bristled at that in terms of, you know, like this is a young woman. She's not an end table. Like she's not, you know, a water cooler that's for me, but you know, it says a lot right about the culture that I was walking into and that it was like, here are all your resources. 
a, a mm-hmm. human who we have hired who is very young will be one of those resources. So mm-hmm. um, when I spent time with her and we started working together, um, I, you know, as you just said, I never had an assistant before. Um, I had certainly, you know, managed other people um, and, you know, delegated certain tasks based on people's, you know, job descriptions, but I had never had a full on in title assistant, you know, whatever I need goes. And mm-hmm. I remember her saying very sweetly, you know, oh, you know, like I'm not above like getting you coffee or like lunch. And like, I'm just sitting there staring at her thinking like, I would never ask you to do that. Like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and, and again, it's not really from an intellectual argument. I just, I just wouldn't ask somebody to get me my food. It just seems really infantilizing. Um, but as I started, you know, speaking with her and spending more time with her, Um, I asked her, you know, what her career goals were in terms of, you know, clearly she didn't want to be an assistant forever, but also Mm -hmm. like, you know, did she want to stay in media? You know, did she want to be a writer? Did she want to work? I don't know, in like video, you know, just trying to get an assessment of like where, you know, her goals are. And she told me that she actually wanted a role very similar to mine. Like she understood a lot about digital strategy, which I picked up on, you know, very early with her. Um, She was Mm -hmm. very smart. She was very savvy. She had a good feel for, you know, the internet in terms of like what lands, what doesn't, like how to present things on social. Like she just had that very complex Mm -hmm. brain. And, you know, as I say in the book, like I'm a relatively young person still. And, you know, I grew up on the internet, but this young woman was 10 years younger than me. Like she literally grew up on the internet. It's yeah. not a hyperbolic statement. So um, I started, you know, since I wasn't going to have her like get me coffee and lunch and stuff, I started to think of ways in which like she might actually be, you know, a- an advantage in terms of m- my own seniority and everything I was tasked with doing. And then just frankly, like the management of the brand and the website. And so, oh, right. I started very intentionally CCing her on like really high level emails where we would be talking about like editorial strategy and how to, you know, lay things out, how to approach like award ceremony, things like that. And I encouraged her, you know, outside of the thread, just she and I together, I was like, you know, if you have opinions on what we're talking about, I encourage you to you know, be vocal about them on the email thread. Don't feel like you have to fall back because like you're an assistant in title. I'm CCing you on this stuff for a reason so you can see it, but also so that other people can see you and see your contributions to what we're talking about. Um, And that, you know, gave her a whole different window into how the site was run and also decisions. Um, You know, she pioneered some ideas there that like were, you know, really great in terms of how we executed certain coverage. But then I ran into a very real (laughs) um, structural blockade where, Uh you know, because we were working so closely together, um, she would accompany me to a lot of these high level meetings and, or, you know, I tried to, and I got pushed back Mm. from the more senior people, um, you know, in my company and that they were like, oh, actually, you know, assistants aren't allowed to these meetings, which I thought was very dubious and like confidential. yeah, Yeah. Like curious, like really like she has a you know a credit card in my name like (laughs) like she cc'd on so much you know quote-unquote sensitive information and so I started to realize it was just like a power play like they basically Mm -hmm. you know want to have these closed door conversations where there are no assistants and it's just kind of another reminder that like you are an assistant you know and therefore you're not allowed there and you know I don't agree Mm. with that ideologically um but also just in terms of like what this young woman was capable of like she's very smart you know there's no reason she shouldn't be in that meeting except for these dumb hierarchical rules so um I worked with another colleague to basically 
change her job title as well as her mm-hmm. job description um, so that she would no longer be an assistant in title. <laughs> um, the role subversive, that, yeah. The role yeah, that I like it. we eventually got for her was such that you know I would still manage her, I would still manage her job responsibilities, I would still you know in, in a lot of ways like oversee her job performance, but she would no longer be an assistant, you know, in title. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and you know she wasn't mm-hmm. anyway from like the moment I got there. So yeah. um, you know we had her. We, we, we had her job changed. We had her job changed. And then she wasn't an assistant anymore, quote unquote. And then I just started bringing her to the meetings. <laughs> and eventually sending her to meetings on your behalf. Yes. That's, so that's what's interesting is that this is not like a charitable action. This is actually much more nuanced than that, right? Like you're not saying get into a position of power and just like give support to everybody around you. You're also saying, although that would be nice, you know, you're you're saying here this person was talented and totally wasted. Like corporate waste is such a yeah, thing really. of human potential. And you got in there and identified that and said, she can be doing so much more. Why are we limiting her in this way? And that I think that's an interesting like counter argument to Catherine's concern as well, mm-hmm. which is sometimes actually getting more power. I'm not saying exclusively or only, but sometimes growing your own power over yourself means having power to grow for others as well and like create avenues of growth for others. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when you get to a certain level of seniority and I, I document this a lot in the book, like challenging organizations Mm -hmm. and challenging companies and, and challenging, you know, what you're being pressured to mandate, Mm -hmm. um, how, you know, you're supposed to manage people. Um, I've done a lot of in my own role, um, it's funny you say subversive because I think that's not the only word that comes to mind, but it's like, you know, for, um, I've gotten, I've gotten a lot, uh, uh, managed for certain employees based on, um, you know, subject to manager approval. So, you know, if they're, if I, again, I'm retired from leadership positions in media. I right now, that's what I want to be doing. But when I did have these roles, you know, I, for instance, like managed a lot of, uh, women who were new mothers or shortly going to become mothers. And it was like, you know, management really, had these deeply archaic and deeply, you know, honestly capitalistic understandings of like women as workers and therefore, you know, Mm -hmm. becomes complicated when they become parents. And like, Mm -hmm. I was always, you know, working to kind of finesse to give them like longer parental leaves or to, you know, make it so they could work from home and like actually adjust to having a newborn and, you know, what that actually means in terms of their body and also like the amount of right. energy they have and then like skill sets. And it's like, you know, as far as my role in like facing, you know, management or the executive team, it's like, you know, they're, they're, they're assessing that I'm going to handle it, whatever it is. So if I'm looking at them in yeah. a meeting and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, like she's still on parental leave. They're not going to say anything if I don't say anything. Right. Um, right. 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 <laughs> but again, That's like it's a. It's a good example of like the John Lewis model of like sometimes you got to get in a little bit of good trouble and like whether it's what you're going to tweet or what you're going to say or not say to management, like there's those small acts of radical progress Mm -hmm. can actually happen inside not very radical places. Yeah, I I do agree with that. And I think that, you know, it would be wonderful if like more people 
who did think that way, you know, got promoted in a lot of these senior roles. Mm. And as I'm sure many of your listeners know, that's not always the case. You know, not it's, always, no. it's the people who yeah. play the politics the best, you know, in these very internal yeah. settings, um, you know, who get promoted to weirdly the roles where they are in charge of the most people. <laughs> yeah. God, don't we know that? It, you know, you're reminding me, I, I come back to this quote often, but I think it was a 2017 uh, United State of Women's Summit, Michelle Obama giving like this fireside chat style interview said, some of us women have just been so lucky or feel so fortunate to be in the room. We're just holding on to that boardroom table for dear life instead of doing the work of shaking it up like we actually need to. Mm-hmm. And it is that kind of reminder that if you aren't actually sticking your neck out with power, like once you get in that room, what are you doing mm-hmm. other than maintaining a status quo that barely wanted you there to begin with? I agree with that wholeheartedly. <laughs> <laughs> My last question for you, I could obviously talk to you forever. I must let you go. Um, but one last really tactical uh, takeaway from a extremely robust book that I could spend like a semester unpacking um, is – privilege and how trendy it has become to just check your privilege and say how lucky we are to be here and how privileged my perspective is and how limited that is. You wrote as an alternative to just checking your privilege, you might say something like this instead. You write, quote, I'm not lucky to have held senior roles. I'm light-skinned. I'm cisgender. I'm conventionally feminine in a way that's constantly culturally affirmed. I'm thin and able-bodied and always have been. I'm not lucky to have gone to college. I'm from a middle-class home. I was raised by people who talked to me about books, which we had in the home in the first place, and who at the time, and who had at the time the resources to engage with me about them. When you line up all of these factors, you're not looking at random good fortune. You're looking at the mathematics of privilege and how these distinct advantages have destinies in our America. What is different about that than just checking your privilege? (laughs) Um, Well, I think in terms of uh, like setting that, for instance, against the backdrop of the entire book where it's like, Mm. I could have just been this, you know, light skinned, conventionally feminine editor, you know, who passes. Right. And like, regardless of, you know, what I've put on the Internet many years from now, um, me, you know, occupying these roles and sitting there and not critiquing the structure doesn't challenge Mm. power. Um, And so in the context of the book, you know, in its totality, I think it is important to name, you know, those exact dynamics that have lined me up Mm. to be an editor at Vogue, to be an editor at Mary Claire, to like pass through these really prestigious newsrooms. But as I make the case for, I don't think the circumstances, you know, through which I ascended to those roles should be replicated. Um, I don't think that the hierarchies that, you know, I have navigated should be replicated. Um, I don't think that the working conditions should be replicated. Um, I don't think that, you know, the labor of a lot of people in media, which, you know, is really being reported amply right now. I don't Mm. know if you saw recently, but um, I think earlier this year, the staff of the New Yorker went on strike, you know, after the union Mm. published all this incredible data on how underpaid, you know, people who have been at the New Yorker for 20 years plus. Um, 
I, I recommend your listeners look into it. It's really interesting, especially across gender, because not surprisingly, I'll drop the link in. Yeah, the shows, um, show notes they, for sure. they did a, a document that got floated around that was like, you know, we pulled all our employees and like, look, the people who make the most are often women and of color. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm not content with these scenarios and I don't necessarily want to uphold them as these very, you know, feminist empowering spaces, despite the branding and narratives, you know, that I have been tasked with either editing or soliciting. Um, So I think it's important that you know that data about me, you know, as the reader on the other side of the book. But I don't think that, you know, me citing them necessarily face value is like proactive. I think that me writing the book is proactive. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, well, I think you're also taking it a step further than saying, here's my privilege. It's, these are the the systemic forces behind these statistics Mm -hmm. that we must acknowledge and allude to and dismantle, Mm -hmm. which it's a lifetime of work and then some for, (laughs) for us. I'm excited to see what you do next because the book really lays out a really robust, uh, we got work to do, as the Obamas always say. <laughs> like, man, do we have some work to do. Come back. Thank you so much for being here. Where can my listeners get their hands on your book and or learn more about you? Um, you can get the book at your local library. Um, I also, uh, it was a new experience for me, but I narrated the audiobook as well, which um, nice. I've I can't say it enough. I've never done anything like that. (laughs) Um, So you can get both at your local library. You can purchase either the book or the audiobook at any bookseller of your choosing where you live. Um, And, you know, I do hope that the history that I'm offering to you is something that you can return to again and again, you know, especially for the listener, Catherine, you know, when you Mm -hmm. have these moments um, where you feel yourself being caught between structural power and then like quote unquote feminist narratives, I hope returning to the book, you know, in different capacities is helpful for you. Yeah, I know I will be. There's a lot (laughs) in here. It's, it's like, there's a lot in here to, to hit home on. I've had Team, all my team meetings this week have uh, been taken over by book discussions for you about white feminism. Oh, good. good. So, yeah, it's great. We're also going to be giving away a copy of White Feminism on Boss Stop's Instagram channels this week. Um, so that's another place we're going to try to get your book in the hands of more people. Oh, thank so you. thank you again <laughs> for being here. This has been so delightful. Thank you for having me, Emily. And thank you also for these really thoughtful questions and really engaging with the book, even as it's, you know, challenged your own ideas, your own, you know, perception of your business. Like, I think that's very, um, not just important because I feel like that can be a throwaway word, but it does mean a lot to me that you're willing to challenge yourself. Oh, thanks. (laughs) And I, I appreciate your willingness to disagree publicly with another woman in, in a public place. I feel like that's a radical act these days too. So It's great. Thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) To get links to everything Ko and I talked about and learn more about Koa's work and her awesome new book, head to bossedup.org slash episode 312. That's bossedup.org slash episode 312. And now it's time for this week's boss move of the week. Today, I want to give a shout out to Corey, who posted recently in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook, which, by the way, is where you should head to discuss after every episode you listen to what other listeners in the Bossed Up community thought and your take on Koa's message. I'd love to hear from you there. 
But Corey wrote this in response to a recent Fierce Friday post where I always ask on Fridays, what are you feeling most proud of this week? Here's what she wrote. We closed out a grant this week that assisted 150 plus households in one of our counties with direct payments for pandemic relief. Staff capacity was maxed and yet everyone accomplished so much while maintaining a positive attitude. Also proud that the staff that primarily worked on this took time off yesterday and today. That's midweek. So I love that, Corey. Not only are you fighting the good fight for the constituents you serve, but you're also serving yourself and serving your staff and taking the time you deserve to recover and rest. That is radical. And I'm so proud uh, of you. And thank you for sharing your Fierce Friday check-in. Total boss move. Uh, and I hope it inspires others who are listening to do the same. All right. I want to hear from you. What did you think about my discussion with uh, Koa Beck today? Dying to hear your response. Have you had a chance to read her book? If so, let me know your take, or if you pick up a copy, let me know how uh, how you're consuming it, how you're processing it all uh, as you read her, frankly, fascinating revolutionary, well-researched, but also really challenging material. I found it very challenging, and I hope that makes it okay for you to say the same if you find it challenging as well. We're always discussing each episode after it airs in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook, so make sure to find us there. Uh, The Courage community on Facebook is what to search for. You can also find a link in today's show notes. Oh, and as I mentioned, we'll be raffling off a copy of White Feminism, Koa Beck's new book, on the Bossed Up Instagram feed this week. So it pays to listen in real time as new episodes come out. Make sure you head to the Bossed Up Instagram channel. That's at bossedup.org. And weigh in there for your chance to win a free copy we're gifting to one lucky listener slash follower. Thank you, as always, for spreading the word, for sharing this episode with the women in your world or dudes or non-binary folks in your world who you think could use it. I'm so proud to be part of this community. I'm so proud to walk with you on the quest to whether it's self optimization or activation or activism. I'm here for it. And I appreciate you being here, too. Let's continue to, as the motto goes, from America's first black women's club back in 1896, let's continue to lift as we climb. 